0: The richest 25% of households in this country hold a third of the student loan debt. The bottom quarter holds a tenth of the student loan debt. Student loan debt is disproportionately held by people who have higher incomes.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Last week, the Biden administration made some pretty big headlines when it announced an enormously controversial executive order, for $500 billion in student debt cancellation. And as the New York Times is reporting, he appears to have caved to pressure from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that he had, until recently anyway, resisted. And there's been a lot of heat around this issue since the announcement, and a lot of confusion as well. So I wanted to talk to somebody who knows this issue inside and out, so I asked a good friend of the show, Lynnae Erickson, to join me today. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. And she's been working on the student loan debt issue for years at Third Way and wrote a great medium piece on the proposal, which we'll link to in the show notes. Lene, it's great to see you. And it's also so wonderful when one of our politicology favorites actually is the subject matter expert in the issue we need to talk about. So welcome back. And uh, I'm looking forward to this.
0: Thank you. It's so fun to be here in a different iteration. I feel like mostly what I'm talking about is like insurrectionist Kevin McCarthy. And I feel like his name will only come up one one time maybe in this podcast which is really delightful <laughs> like, you, but you know you it's, fit that it's, in every instead, time I love it <laughs> every time there there is a place where he Certainly. fits here but um but he's not the bulk of the discussion which is great and um you know I, I work at a think tank I don't work on a campaign so I spend at least sixty percent of my time if not more in a given week working on how do we Fix policy in this country. And so to have a, an opportunity to talk to you about something nerdy like that, um, it's just a delight.
1: You are um, taxed for time these days. You're all over media. You got another one after this. So I want to be as efficient with our time as possible. Why don't we start with the actual plan? Let's just set the table. Can you lay out what the student loan cancellation policy uh, that Biden announced last week actually does?
0: Yeah, so I'm sure you've seen the headlines about uh, $10,000 in loans and $20,000 in loans, but let me give you one line below that. So for anyone who has existing student loans that have been dispersed before July of this year, um, if they make less than $125,000 a year or $250,000 as a family, um, they can apply for $10,000 worth of that debt forgiven. If they also happen to be a Pell Grant recipient, which is the financial aid that we use to help low and moderate income uh, families attend college, um, then they can apply for up to $20,000. But they still have to meet those income thresholds. So if you were a Pell Grant recipient, as I was, who attended college um, with this important grant, um, and now you make more than $125,000 a year, you don't qualify. So you need to both have both of those components in in order to do that. And the thing that I think has been the most confusing to folks, you know, even walking around my office talking about this is it is not automatic because there is no way to make it automatic. Mm. So the Biden administration originally said it would put out an application by the end of the year. They've now updated and said they're gonna try to do that by early October. So if, as I suspect, many of our listeners have student loans, please go to the Department of Education's website and sign up for the alerts um, or watch watch the news to make sure that you apply right away. Um, Because the other two things they did was, one, they extended. The payment pause. We haven't been making people pay back their student loans um, since the beginning of COVID. They extended that to January. So if you have existing student loans, you will get a bill in January. Um, Even if you have less than $10,000, you'll get a bill in January if you haven't applied and gotten your your application processed. Um, And also, they set up this new um, income-based repayment system, which basically says um, no person should have to pay more than 5% of their discretionary income um, to to pay off their student loans. And the most important and wonkiest part of that is they also said as you're paying that off, your balance will not grow. So we already have some income-based repayment programs, but they're very frustrating to people because, say, you're only having to pay $30 a month because you have a really low income, um, but you've you've got loans that have interest of more than $30 a month, you're making your payments that the government says to make, but your balance is going up over time. And that is super demoralizing. And one of the big problems we need to fix with the system. So with this new plan, if you get into that new plan, you'll have a lower payment for almost anyone, will have a lower payment than they could. In any other plan. And they'll be guaranteed that if they're making payments on time, their balance will not grow. So those are the big components of the loan pieces. And I know we we can talk a little bit about the other pieces of this announcement later in the pod, but that's kind of the, the outlines.
1: Got it. Okay. And just to clarify, this uh, does this only apply to federal student loans?
0: Yes, it only applies to federal student loans and the income-based repayment program that I just mentioned only applies to undergraduate loans. So one thing that folks might not realize is that 50% of the outstanding student debt of $1.6 uh, trillion dollars is graduate loans. Those will not be able to be put into this income-based repayment program, um, but they will be able to apply for the forgiveness. If that's the only loans you have, um, you can apply for forgiveness for those graduate loans, but you won't be able to do this um, kind of 5% payment program.
1: Got it. Okay. Because that $1.6 trillion number is is floating around everywhere. Um, that's a good clarification. So it's $10,000 up to if you make up to one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, or twenty thousand dollars of forgiveness if you make up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars as a household. Correct?
0: No, no. Uh, the household provision goes to the the previous piece too. The twenty thousand is if you attended college as a Pell Grant recipient, ah, so you were okay. low income then, and you continue to be under those income thresholds. Got it. Uh, which are for both pieces: one hundred and twenty-five as an individual, two hundred and fifty as a married couple.
1: Got it. Let's dive into the many facets of this uh, and and the controversy. So let's start with the economics. There have been claims within the Democratic Party from Democratic leaders that this is both regressive and potentially inflationary. Um, On the regressive side, uh, meaning it takes from those who have less and gives to those who have more, uh, essentially it redistributes taxpayer money to those with the highest earning potential. Now, earlier this year, the New York Fed released new data that showed the income gap between workers with college degrees and workers with high school diplomas is now at an all-time high and in 2020 brookings published data from a study that looked at lifetime average lifetime earnings and annual earnings by educational attainment and bachelor's degree holders and they are uniformly the highest earning cohort uh, among all the cohorts that were studied now one of the most vocal critics of this plan is jason furman who was the chairman of president obama's council of economic advisors and he did a q and a with the atlantic uh, with Annie Lowry, and she summarized his answers this way: Furman argues that Biden's plan will lavish relief on individuals with high incomes or the prospect of high incomes, encouraging universities and colleges to jack up tuition rates and burdening future students with heavier loan burdens. He also worries about people who did not take out loans, meaning most Americans ultimately paying for the plan. So let's start there, and just just on the on the on the regressive piece of the economics here. What are your thoughts, and and where should we start?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you take apart Jason Furman's comments, there are several different problems embedded in that, right? So um, the first is that uh, the richest 25% of households in this country hold a third of the student loan debt. The bottom quarter holds a tenth of the student loan debt. Mm. Student loan debt is disproportionately held by people who have higher incomes, and so that means if you were to do blanket debt forgiveness, like let's just wipe it all away, what Bernie wants to do, um, you would give $3 to wealthy Americans for every $1 you're giving to a low-income household. Oof. So that's where we start. Now, the Biden administration recognizes that, and so they said, okay, we're going to put an income limit on it. So no one who makes above $125,000 a year as an individual or two hundred and fifty dollars as a married couple is going to get this. But that is exceptionally high in terms of a lot money threshold. It's a lot, of money, it's a lot yeah. of money, and so what it ends up doing is covering. They they means tested it is what they call that, right? Which was, you know, to be honest, was something the left hated. They said no means testing. Um, they actually had posted um, posters on all the lampposts around the White House that said, no means testing. <laughs> oh, and wow. it, made me, it made me laugh because I was like, who puts means testing on a poster? That's such a dorky, wonky wow. thing to say. But but they had kind of drawn a line in the sands. So the Biden administration did say, no, we are going to make sure that, that this only goes to um, a, a certain kind of household. However, the way that they did it this generously means that 95% of borrowers are covered. So That's the talking point I've
1: seen. Right.
0: 5% aren't. Great. I'm glad they aren't, but it still doesn't fix the regressivity problem. The other piece is that then you think about the fact that only 20% of U.S. adults even have student loan debt. And some of those people, about a third of them, are people who don't actually have a college degree because maybe they started college and didn't finish. Those are people we should have special concern about because actually those are the people that are most at risk of defaulting on those loans because they took them out and then they didn't get the credential that allows them to make more money um, in, in their career to pay it back. Um, but two thirds have a college degree. And as you noted, that is absolutely the quickest way to secure a path to economic mobility in this country. And so we're leaving a lot of people out who never went to college. And like I said, this only counts for people that, you know, had already had their loans dispersed before July of this year. So if you are a person who never attended college because you didn't feel like you could afford it, this doesn't help you. If, this, if you're a person who is a junior in high school right now. This doesn't help you, um, and on and on. And and one thing that you know I find really striking is that half of Black adults have never attended higher education.
1: Oh wow!
0: And so we're we're leaving a lot of folks out who absolutely need help, and quote unquote targeting this to a lot of folks that don't need help. That doesn't mean that everyone who's can apply for this, doesn't need help. Some people do, but the Venn diagram isn't really drawn in a way that covers the people who do with the most money. Rather, it's kind of drawn in a haphazard way that catches some people that really do need help. Some people that are just starting out their career that maybe are making a hundred thousand dollars a year at 24. I'd say those folks are probably doing fine if they have a college degree, but they're going to get their loans forgiven. And most importantly, in my mind, does absolutely nothing to fix the problem. Nothing to fix the problem going forward.
1: Yeah. And by the end of this conversation, I would like to spend a few minutes on what would fix the problem and some and some really good policy proposals that, that you've in particular been working on. Um, so I hope we can wrap there. Let's go to um, the inflationary claim. So um, CNBC released a poll last week uh, found nearly six in 10 Americans are now worried that student loan forgiveness will make inflation worse. Um, inflation, and the economy, as we all know, are two real top of mind issues for most of the top issue still in the midterms. Um, uh, Jason Furman, who I mentioned earlier, uh, in that Q and a said half a trillion dollars of gasoline on an inflationary fire. that is already burning. Um, and this is what made me think the way he's, the way he described the, the, uh, the inflation piece was, uh, like this one group is getting $500 billion dollars. And they're going to spend more. They're going to buy more housing. They're going to be better off. The problem is that the economy is already producing the most it possibly can. If anything, the Fed wants it to produce less, not more. And we just saw that the Fed is about to raise rates again. That was yesterday. Uh, What will happen is that they will spend more and it will drive up the price of houses and everything else. Due to that inflation, every household will end up spending $200 more a year on what they need. There isn't free money out there. There are consequences once you frame it as 320 million people paying for a benefit for 30 million people, it makes you think a lot harder. So, um, as we've talked about, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act cut $300 billion from the deficit over 10 years, uh, and the White House and Democrats were right to celebrate that achievement. I was celebrating that achievement, Um, but in the first year of this cancellation, uh, they will wipe out that achievement and then some and add roughly $350 billion to the deficit. Uh, and, and this, as we've mentioned, this plan will cost half a trillion dollars in total. Can you talk about what impact loan forgiveness could have on inflation, how you're thinking about that piece?
0: Yeah, although I know uh, the White House has not been happy with most things I've said in the past week, but they would be happy for me to correct Jason Furman and say 43 million People would be eligible under <laughs> okay. this policy, not 30. thirty. Okay. So forty-three million. I gotta give facts for facts. Reduced. Noted. So, Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, which has been doing the best analysis on this, says it's going to cost, um, you know, about five hundred billion dollars. And um, as you mentioned, that completely wipes away um, the uh, progress we had made um, on the deficit in um, in the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, and so there's the the inflationary pressure of just spending more money in general. And, um, you know, immediately, uh, Committee for Responsible Federal Budget says this will add 15 to 27 basis points to inflation immediately. So. For for me as a person that doesn't know what a basis point is, I had to ask my econ <laughs> team about that. And they said it's basically uh 0.15 to 0.27% to inflation, just like right off the bat. Now that doesn't sound like a huge amount, but it's also not great when we're like, we were just started to tick down or tick even, as I know that you're going to correct me on that. We just started to tick even. Uh, so we should maybe ha- keep heading in the right direction. And this certainly, if anything, is going to um, you know wipe out whatever whatever um, savings we did get from the IRA. I think the, the concern is that we're doing that. And again, we're talking about a Band-Aid solution that puts us back um that if in you know if what we're worried about is 1.6 trillion dollars in student loan debt we're going to be back there again mm. in 5 years. Oh wow. 5 years. So we're taking this huge government spending giving it out and we have to do it again in 5 years? Are we going to do yeah. this every 5 years? That sounds like a really bad idea to me. So the the fact that we're really, you know, spending this huge outlay on something that does nothing to correct the system and really just dumps more money into a system that is hugely broken, again, not the borrower's fault, but the system is broken. And now we're just writing it another blank check and it's going to solve none of that moving forward. So what we've set up is essentially that we have to spend you know, a, a half a trillion dollars a year every five years wiping out student loan debt.
1: Yeah, that leads to the second, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the consequences for the cost of college, because as much has been said, and you have said this, that we haven't addressed the underlying problem here. How did we get to this? How do we actually need to reform the higher education system and the financing of higher education so that we don't end up in this position? Um, Furman, again, says there's the expectation that debt relief will happen again. That will lead to shifts in the college financing system toward loans and away from grants. It will also raise college tuition as colleges move to capture some of this spending. Our goal should be getting more people into college. It is not obvious that Biden's plan helps with that goal. It might even hurt that goal. So can you talk about um, the consequences, what, what you think this will do to the way Colleges and universities uh, offer financing for tuition, what you think that will do to, to, to to the financial system around higher education?
0: Yeah, I'm going to start with a just a, a very specific example, which is it is my partner's mom's birthday today. Happy birthday, Kathy! Oh, because she's her. a list, she's a listener. And this morning we were talking to her about you know college tours for um, uh, our rising sophomore, and um, that she wants to go to law school. And Katie says, "Well, uh, you know she wants to go to NYU Law School, which is seventy two thousand dollars a year just for tuition, which by the way, put a pin in that. that.'s we're not making anything better with that with this right now for that. But <laughs> and Kathy, there are still
1: too many lawyers.: <laughs>
0: yeah, Ca- yeah. Kathy, a, a delightful person who's very you know very up on the news and usually sees news before I do, um, she, she's like, "Oh good. Well, good thing they just did that 10K in loan forgiveness because at least she'll get that back." And I was like, "No. no, no, no. It's not for loans going forward. (laughs) It's for backward-looking loans. So even people who are really paying attention, I think, are are thinking this sounds like a blanket policy that's just like, oh, $10,000 to go to school. But that's not what it is. Um, and, you know, that just goes back to the, the way that we have debt financed our higher education system. You know, um, you'll hear all these members of Congress and older people say like, well, I worked my way through college and, you know, I, I don't understand why kids can't. Now, because it's $70,000 a year. <laughs> like, it's not, $200 a credit or whatever it was when you were um, in college. And so I think that's that's a very disingenuous argument. But it also, um, you know, it, it it's because of the fact that um, our Pell Grant has basically remained the same size. And this is the number one way that we help support low and moderate income um, students to be able to have access to college. It used to pay for 80% of the cost of attendance. It now pays for less than 30%, which means that people need to keep Taking out more and more and more loans and have less of that kind of um, upfront grant money to support it. Then you add the fact that states have disinvested because through most states have a um, a provision that says you have to balance your budget every year. So through the um, recessionary times in 2008 through 2010, they couldn't cut how they paid for healthcare. They couldn't cut, you know, their their how they pay for roads. There were things that were just non-fungible. And so they just kept cutting higher ed. So the states have disinvested, the Pell Grant doesn't pay for what it used to, and the prices are rising in a huge way. And part of that is because we continue to spend billions uh, billions in loans and grants a year, like $130 billion of taxpayer money, without asking anything from these schools. We don't ask them to not raise tuition. We don't ask them to you know, tell us how many students actually graduate. We don't ask them to make sure the students can pay back their student loans. We don't ask them, can most of the people that you enroll six years later make more than the typical high school graduate in their area? We ask nothing of them. And then on the graduate side, we let unlimited borrowing happen. So as I said, 50% of student loans are are graduate student loans. That's because you can literally take out the whatever you want, whatever you need for, for grad schools. And so the, the grad schools keep hiking their rates because they're like, great, they can pay for it with loans. And so you add that all together. You've just created this dynamic where of course we're in this situation, right? There's, there's no other way that, um, that institutions were going to act if we just keep shoveling money at them and we keep telling students they can take out as much as the schools want them to. That's, That's where you end up in this kind of a mess.
1: Okay, so the consequences here could be pretty bad if the higher education system sees this and takes away the message that, well, there will be more debt relief in the future, so we can keep doing what we're doing and then some basically. That's
0: right. Okay. Now, let no. me say, I, I will say that the administration also is very aware of this, right? They're very aware that there are predatory colleges. They've canceled um, about $32 billion in loans. At my last count, that might be higher now um, for people who have been actively defrauded. like Their college lied to them, <laughs> defrauded them, And we've Trump University
1: grads in there, but anyway,
0: yeah, right. Actually, (laughs) technically, and I will only say this because our listeners would know the difference. Trump University was never accredited, so (laughs) it doesn't. It never got. Federal student loans. Oh, he just took the the money
1: straight away. Okay, that's
0: right. (laughs) But given that they're given how shoddy our accreditation system is, it absolutely could have been accredited. (laughs) (laughs) He just did not actually fill out the paperwork to make that happen. Thank God. (sighs) Um, But yes, so the but the administration did do a few things to try to address this because they knew we're saying you're taking this system with predatory colleges, colleges that are leaving people with unaffordable debt and giving them more money. And so what they did was they put a few things around kind of accountability for institutions. You would have to go to the White House's website to the longest fact sheet they have, the most, keep clicking until you get to the longest, most detailed version of the fact sheet. And it's the last paragraph. But that paragraph's really good. Okay. It's just hidden. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it says um, going forward, we are going to make a list of institutions that leave students in unaffordable debt on a regular basis. And potentially, maybe we're going to ask students to uh, sign something that says, I realize that this institution leaves most students in afford unaffordable debt before they spend a bunch of taxpayer money there. Mm. That would be a good idea. That would be a great they idea. They also have. They also have have cracked down on some of the shoddiest accreditors so just this this last month um, they kicked um, this accreditor that was accrediting like ITT Tech and all these predatory schools out of the system. That's the first one that's the lowest hanging fruit they got to do more, but that's one um, And as I said, they've forgiven some of these loans around the predatory colleges but what another thing they've done there is they're trying to recoup that money for the taxpayers from those institutions. That's very difficult because they basically just, you know, declare themselves bankrupt and go on and start the next for-profit college, but it's it's good that they're trying. Uh, so the the most important thing though that they should have already done, that they kicked to next year, is this rule that the Obama administration had put in place for career programs that said, um, if you uh are consistently leaving folks with unaffordable debt that they cannot repay, um, then you should not have access to federal higher ed dollars anymore. Great idea. Trump turned it back. Uh Biden is trying to put it back in place, but they're doing it slower than I wish they would. And um, we also need them to be stronger than they are on it because even under the Obama era rules, there were 1,700 career programs that left people earning below the poverty line after having attended higher education, and only 4% of those programs failed the previous test. So we need the gainful employment rule again, and we need it to be stronger because those are the places where people are really, really suffering with huge amounts of debt and getting a, a degree or not getting a degree, but getting a, a certificate um, if they even finish that is worth basically nothing in the job market.
1: Let's move to uh, the perception of this in the politics. Um which is a doozy. So there's, there, there is a perception uh, and a political problem here. So we've spent a lot of time talking about how Democrats have been losing working class voters, non-college educated voters. Um, and I know you have thoughts on this. What message does it send to those voters when the Biden administration prioritizes college educated people?
0: Well, again, I'll say a third of people who might be able to apply for this program might not have gotten their college degree. So again, there is a Venn diagram here. There are some non-college voters who have college debt because they didn't finish, which is why, by the way, we should incentivize incentivize colleges to actually get people to the finish line, not just to continue to enroll them and cash the checks from the right from the taxpayers. We don't ask them that now. Um, but I, I will say, I think, you know, putting back my political hat on that I usually have for our conversations. We know that ever since 2016, there's been this real gap um, in education levels in terms of how people vote. And that didn't used to happen before Um, you used to have like, college-educated white people and non-college white people voting around the same. Uh, same with college-educated, non- college-educated Latino voters, African-American voters, Asian voters, and on. That is not the case anymore. So it is definitely something that we need to keep our eye on that Democrats are hemorrhaging voters that do not have a college degree who seem to think we do not care about them. I do not think that the headline, cancel all student debt, sends a good message to those people. And if there's already a perception that Democrats are, you know, a little bit elitist, a little bit focused on college-educated voters in the suburbs or urban areas, um, and a little bit dismissive, frankly, of jobs that do not require a college degree, this really just solidifies that perception. And that is really what I worry about. But the thing that frustrates me even more is I do think this was a political decision. and. I think it was based on an assumption that young people will come out and vote uh, because of this $10,000 in loan forgiveness and 20 for Pell Grant recipients. Let me tell you, first of all, first of all, you know what? Young people are coming out to vote. We've seen it in the special, special elections. It's because we don't have reproductive rights in this country anymore. They're already coming out to vote. This was Addressing a problem that no longer exists—it existed 60 days ago, but it does not exist now. Secondly, it reminds me of our assumption that, oh, hey, if we support immigration reform, all Latino voters will come out and vote for Democrats. This is not young voters' number one issue, in the slightest. The Harvard uh, Institute of Politics does what is, you know, always seen as the preeminent poll of young people in this country, and. When you ask them what their priority is, number one, the economy. Hmm.
1: Imagine that, same as everybody else.
0: (laughs) Biggest part part of the economy, if you break that down, inflation. Huh, that's interesting. You know how many people said student debt? 1%. 1% 1 said student debt. And so you look at that and then you ask them directly and they had, you know, 38% of voters, I think they do 18 to 29 year olds, um, 38% said cancel all student debt. Well, 38%, that's not great. And this is the group we think this is going to energize the most. Again, half of Black adults in this country never went to higher education. So I just really think we're we're, again, making an assumption that a Generation is a monolith, and then we're saying, oh, I know what you care about more than what you say you care about. And that's very frustrating to me. So I do not think that the political upside that folks are assuming is going to come. And I think there are huge political risks for Democrats as well.
1: There's one other piece of the of the of, of the politics problem um, for me, which leads to our, our procedural and legal problem here. But um this is the part that really started to get under my skin about the messaging that the White House was putting out, because it they, they started making some really bad faith comparisons to the Paycheck Protection Program, and I want to articulate what I mean by that. So the White House used its official Twitter account uh, to essentially troll people who were critical of this executive action. Um, by calling out members of Congress who had Paycheck Protection Program PPP loans forgiven. And in the first place, the Paycheck Protection Program was an act of Congress, and it was part of the vastly bipartisan, if everybody remembers, CARES Act, uh, which passed nearly unanimously in both houses. I think 96-0 in the Senate and, uh, and 388-5 to in the House. But more importantly, the forgivability of the Paycheck Protection Program loans was by design and required that businesses use the money to keep paying workers instead of laying them off, especially since the government had forced a lot of businesses to close at the beginning of a global pandemic. Now, I am here for the argument that you, that members of Congress should not have been eligible for PPP loans. I Totally valid. Uh, and without a doubt, the rampant fraud that we now know happened and the abuse of the program should be fully and completely and swiftly prosecuted. But to see the White House make such a disingenuous argument—first um, of all, it was an act of Congress, not a unilateral, you know, swipe of a swipe, swipe of a pen, right? To defend a bailout, but also the forgivability of those loans was by design. It was it, that was what people were signing up for. Um, to see them make that argument really put me off, and and left a bad taste in my mouth because they were doing so great. They were on this like winning streak. They had, you know, the tides had begun to turn going into the midterms, and I just thought, oh, you've really lowered yourself to to in in this in this dialogue. Um, anyway, defending a bailout for the highest earning potential uh, segment of the population. So. I'm here agree disagree I'd love to hear your thoughts on that but that was the piece of this that you know politically really put me off.
0: Well first of all I have to put on my Lucy hat because okay. Lucy isn't here right now but <laughs> what Lucy would say right now is hey democrats you are getting a bunch of stories that said democrats in array for yeah. weeks at a time. Yeah. 3 or 3 or 4 weeks in a row. There's no disarray there's just array. We're all, <laughs> we're all marching to the same beat, we Exactly what you're Doing great. We're turning it around. <laughs> And you know what? I'm putting on my Lucy hat. It was too much for us. We were like, no, no, no. no. We need more disarray. This feels too organized.
1: You mean it was too much winning and you got tired of winning?
0: We got tired of winning. (laughs) We decided, you know what? It seems like our whole party agrees right now on too many things. Let's talk about the thing we disagree on most and change the subject from the giant... Incredible legislative wins of this summer. So that's that's my Lucy Caldwell hat because you know I I agree with her. But it's it's not my biggest problem with this announcement. Yeah. But it yeah. is frustrating.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's my biggest political PP- problem. The the procedural right. problem is where I really yeah. You're like where the, oh
0: yeah. wait we're going in the right direction. Oh great look at those generic ballots. Oh let's do something totally different that a bunch of people really hate. Great. So yes, we're doing that. But yeah. um, meanwhile, on the just on the PPP thing, yeah. I think p- to step back, people need to realize like there are so there are two different kinds of ways that we do grants in this country and loans, right? So for example, uh, you know, there's the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program that says uh, you're going to take out your loans, but if you work for ten years and you make payments and you're working in a in a public sector job, uh, we'll pay off your loans at the end of it. Like Teach now for America. That, right. That will. So public service loan forgiveness is awesome. It hasn't worked particularly well. The Biden administration is hopefully fixing that because administratively it's been a mess. However, there is a different program called Teach Grants. And Teach Grants say, I'm going to give you $5,000 up front for your education loan. Uh, You get to keep this $5,000 unless you don't do the thing you promised to do. And what you promised to do is to work for a certain period of time in a low-income school. So if you do the thing you promised to do, it's a grant. If you don't do the thing you promised to do, then mm. you have to pay us back because you promised to do this thing. It's kind of like an ROTC. You yeah. yeah, you're like, okay, I say I'm going to give the Army X amount of service and uh, they're going to pay my tuition. Well, if you quit, They'll come back and be like, "Okay, now you gotta pay." So that's how PPP worked, right? It was always intended to be grants. It was intended as an emergency, as you said, bipartisan, passed by Congress overwhelmingly, to stop people from being laid off in a time of which we had to shut down our economy. So the thing that people promised to get these um, these grants was that they weren't going to lay people off. The only way. The word loan ever came into it was if you started laying everybody off because you didn't do the thing you said. So it's just it's just a completely different structure. It's like if you said, "Oh, I'm going to take this to cover my salaries and my employees," but then I fire all of them. We're going to come back and recoup the money. That is how PPP worked. So it's a very different kind of situation. But I think it just you know raises the fact that that the Biden administration knows that this is legally dubious. They know that. And you know how I know that they know? How? Because
1: Because <laughs> Nancy switched. Pelosi knows it?
0: <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> we'll there get to that. There had already <laughs> been, well, no, but there had already been all these people, including you know the top counsel in the Obama administration, Harvard law professors, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who said the president cannot wipe away student loans with a stroke of a pen. Mm-hmm. I was among those people but you know also Nancy Pelosi Harvard Harvard lawyers and the top counsel in the Obama administration the Biden administration said that they were going to do a legal analysis um, and that's what they've been saying to kick the can for you know 18 months they're like oh we're looking into it we're looking into it It was always being looked at as a potential power under the Higher Education Act. So they had, you know, um, lefty folks and Elizabeth Warren and others saying, oh, well, there's this provision of the Higher Education Act that says you can compromise and settle student loans and their contracts because they're actually loans in, in a contract with the federal government. So that means you can just wipe them all away. Well, most people would say that just means you can adjust the terms of the contract to when there are different payment programs, blah, 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 blah. but uh, that but that was what they were using. They did not they even that. mention it. No. They didn't even mention it. You know why? Because they know it wouldn't hold up in court. They know it wouldn't hold up in court. Instead, on the day of the announcement, all of a sudden, everyone was like, wait, what? The HEROES Act? The Heroes what? Act. What are you talking about? Oh, yeah. some legislation passed in 2003, that gives the president powers to, and the department's powers to do certain things in times of national emergency. And right now, uh, up through October 31st, we're in a time of national emergency, according to um, the COVID rules. And so they they pegged it on COVID. And it was, the, the, I haven't seen five, any legal analysis. A billion dollar
1: due to COVID. <laughs> due
0: to COVID. And, <laughs> and here's, and here's where I am going to get a little snarky on this. If you make $126,000 a year, you also experienced COVID in mm-hmm. the same way that the person who makes $125,000 a year did. If you don't have any student debt, you also experienced covid probably worse <laughs> than mm-hmm. most people who are going to qualify for this forgiveness so i think it is it is a it is a stretch to start. But the reason that they did that is because I had, I mentioned this on a weekly roundup a few weeks ago, you know, the EPA decision that the Supreme Court put out, it was like the same week as Dobbs. So no one paid attention to it, but it said, um, if you are, um, taking on, if an agency is taking on a decision that has, um, uh, political and economic significance there's a different standard. And it needs to be that Congress actually seems like they wanted you to do that thing. Not that you just decided within some really broadly stated vague language that, oh, you want to do this thing, but that Congress actually delegated this specific authority to you. And that's a much higher bar. And, you know, we've talked about this, the major questions doctrine. There is no one on earth that can tell me that this is not economically and politically significant. Yeah. It is. So it is a major question. It's a major question. So that's going to be the new legal threshold that is going to be applied here. And I think very few people think that ultimately it's going to hold up in court.
1: Yeah, so let's get at that briefly. Uh, and by the way, here's here's uh what Nancy Pelosi, here's a full quote Nancy Pelosi at that official press conference in July 2021. She said, "Quote, people think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone, he can delay, but he does not have that power. That has to be an act of Congress. The president can't do it. So that's not even a discussion. No not everybody realizes that." End quote. Now, um so either 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 Nancy Pelosi knows something the White House doesn't know, or this is a much more cynical move. And they're there, you know, is there a possibility? Do you think that they're doing this with the expectation of having it struck down by the court? because that would re that would be really cynical. Then you then you you know, politically, then you channel all of the resulting fury into something that you want. But to do something like this to play around at that level seems very um sort of dicey to me. Uh so Yeah,
0: I mean I think the thing that makes me the most upset about the way that this is structured is not that someone who's making $249,000 a year might get a $10,000 right. check. Yeah. Fine. Those people are few and far between. It's annoying, but that's not my main concern. My main concern is that a bunch of people who really need help have been promised something that they very likely will never get. That is a bigger problem to me, and there is—I think there is a high likelihood this gets struck down. I think the calculation is likely, okay. Let's implement it as soon as possible, and maybe if we can get some money out the door before it gets struck down, then those people, um, you know, the court won't go and recoup those expenses, and so. I think of that as kind of like the DREAM Act argument, where it's like, okay, we know DACA might be a stretch, but we have nothing else for DREAMers, so we'll do this because we know, you know, the 600,000 people who have applied, they're not going to have their status taken away. They're not going to be worse off. So we'll get those folks in, and then, you know, if the court enjoins the action, they just won't let anyone else apply, and so those folks won't be worse off either. That is not the case here because people are worse off because they think it's going to happen automatically. If you have less than $20,000 worth of loans right now, um, you're, you think you don't have any loans anymore. You honestly think you're done now. And that is just not the case. And I really worry that they have not put in place the, the structures that are needed to implement this quickly and effectively and do so in a way that is accessible to the people that really need it not just the people that spend, you know, their entire day refreshing the department of education's website to try to figure out what day the application is released and I'll tell you it doesn't look good in that the <laughs> department of education's website crashed on the day of the announcement just from people trying to sign up for the emails So this is a lot, a lot more difficult to carry out than the bumper sticker makes it sound. And, you know, one of the things that the Biden administration kept touting is, well, if everyone who is eligible applies and gets approved, uh, we will, uh, 90% of the forgiveness will go to people that make $75,000 a year or less. That would be great. That is a lot of ifs. If if we look at public student loan forgiveness right now, it's like four percent of people are getting a, approved, and it's not the people that really need the help the most likely. I mean, again, some of them are, but it makes it harder. So the harder and harder you make this process, and the more it gets held up in court, the fewer people who are really in dire straits are going to be able to take advantage of it. And the higher and higher the relief number to the folks that can hire their lawyers to go fight about it goes. Um, and and that is really fundamentally. Unfair and and really upsetting.
1: Okay, there's one other legal point I want to touch on um, before we move to addressing the underlying problem here. So, uh, also embedded right in this question, uh, in the legal question, is what I think is a is a dubious use of executive authority uh, to circumvent Congress. Uh, and and for me, ever since. Donald Trump was elected, executive authority has been one of the things that I'm most concerned about, the expansion of, of, of the pre- of presidential powers. And I think there's this question of whether we really want the president, uh, any president, um, to be able to unilaterally spend $500 billion without any input from Congress. Um, Ian Ian Basson or Basin, I'm not sure how you say his name, uh, he was an attorney in the Obama White House, and he now runs Protect Democracy, Said, uh, "Quote: If Biden can use emergency powers to get around Congress, so can a president with autocratic ambitions. And this idea of the expansion—if the—if this holds, which I think we both see the writing on the wall here, it probably won't hold. It's going to get struck down eventually. It's just a matter of like what that looks like. But even if, if it holds, then then we have a different problem, I think, on our hands, which is massively expanded uh, presidential." powers. And I wonder if you spend much time thinking about that or worrying about that.
0: Yeah, I hadn't spent as much time worrying about it until I started talking to the Protect Democracy folks and the Brennan Center. So the mm. Brennan Center is a very lefty organization. It is um, headquartered at NYU. Uh, and um, their head of liberty and national security came out and said, this is, I understand the reason you're doing this. I get it. It's a really bad idea. Because if you can do this with a stroke of a pen, what can Donald Trump do with the stroke of his pen? And that, I think, is a a thing that we really need to grapple with. You know, I remember um, way back in the Bush administration talking about executive power. And I know that um, usually Democrats don't wield it in the same, you know, with the same fashion as Republicans. But now we're pushing it even further. And, you know, if if Biden can do this, does that mean that, you know, we're giving Trump more ability to sick the FBI on Black Lives Matter protesters? Does that what, like I can't even describe to you the parade of horribles, that this kind of power that is completely unchecked from Congress, who is supposed to be, the ones that have the purse, right, in our in our constitution. There's a reason that spending bills can only originate in the House of Representatives, because they are the ones that are closest to the people. And we have said, if you're going to spend the people's money, you better be starting with the people that are elected from the people and have to stand to the, up against the people again and again and again every two years for election, because if the people don't like it, they're going to throw you out. That is the opposite of how Hamilton, we're spending money actually. here. That's right. And <laughs> and it makes good sense. So it is it's very disconcerting. It doesn't mean you can, you know, take even more money and go build your wall. Does it mean like there's just I, I I've gotten tired of coming up with a parade of horribles of <laughs> things that Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon oh, and, and Donald Trump might think up, but boy, I'm sure it's it's a long list. Yeah, but I don't and, want to enter
1: but, that dreamscape. And that's really worrisome.
0: And and I think, you know, there's been some folks within this kind of legal community who have said, well, we're never really going to get to that level because no one has the right to sue here. There are standing problems, right? In order to come into court, um, you know, you have to show that you have sustained direct harm and that that harm is redressable by the court in some way. You can't just have a generalized grievance. I can't come and be like, I'm angry my taxpayers or dollars are paying for the Iraq war. Uh, I'm going to sue in court. You have to have direct harm to you. Um, but there are people who can make the case that they do. So, you know, loan servicers are the, you know, not popular, but the first people on that potential list and banks. Um, and, you know, maybe that person that makes $126,000 a year, they might have standing because they're not getting anything from this, but the folks who make 125 dollars are. Um, but then you go to the thing that we just have not put all this together, which is if Kevin McCarthy wins this, the speakership, he can sue in January. he The House of Representatives has standing to enforce their power to spend the money of this country. Nancy Pelosi's not going to sue Joe Biden, even though she thinks this is a bad idea. Kevin McCarthy will. So if we haven't shoveled out all of this money by January 6th, 7th, whenever it is, and Republicans have an even one seat majority in the House, you can say goodbye to this program. And I think that is very worrisome and leaves a bunch of people in a in a horrible lurch.
1: God, politically, this is a gift to the right. <laughs> It's hard. It's hard to see it any other way. Um, okay, let's let's spend a few minutes being constructive here, so that people can understand. Are you what, implying that this uh,
0: conversation <laughs> hasn't been? No, no, no. It's been,
1: I mean, I mean, I want. Okay, we've been. And by the way, we do get tons of. And by the way, if you're hearing this and you're like pissed that we're beating up the Biden administration, because sometimes you know we call them out when the, whatever. Fine, that's send us an email. Um, but we're we're calling balls and strikes here, and you know uh uh, and Lene, uh, I I admire you and I respect you profoundly for sticking your neck out and and for saying the things you're saying. As hard as it is to you know be critical of your own party and the administration and and you know especially when we've all worked so hard to elect these guys. So um, uh, I just I tip my hat to you. Um, uh, okay, so you've described the plan as a bandit on an open wound. I want to talk about the open wound, and I want to talk about. Um, some of your favorite policy proposal ideas for reforming higher ed. So you've laid out some of the underlying structural issues earlier in our conversation um, that have contributed to the amount of college debt. What are some ways to ensure colleges put people in a position where they can make a return on their investment? What what big reforms would you like to see? And And I hope that you know, an emphasis on community colleges and technical schools and trade schools as part of this answer because I I haven't seen enough people talking about that, so...
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, people were talking about that way back when we had Build Back Better, right? The Biden mm, administration yeah. had their free community college plan and it didn't get passed. And then everybody kind of dropped the subject and went on to the next thing. Um, and and we really do need to take that up again, because um, whether it's free community college or um, funding for the colleges that are doing the work of really putting people in better economic position, um, we Right now, we have a voucher program within our higher education system. If you get a Pell Grant, it's like Uh, $6,000. I had a Pell Grant, right? Okay, I can take that to Harvard, or I can take it to the community college down the street, or I can take it to a state school. I get the same amount no matter what. Harvard doesn't need my $6,000. Harvard has all the money. It's fine. And the community college probably needs more than $6,000. And unlike in our K-12 system, we have no way to recognize that some schools are doing more with less and um, taking the vast majority of underserved student populations. And some some of them are struggling and not doing great with them. Some of them are doing exceptionally well with them. None of them are getting sufficient support from the state or the federal government to do that yeoman's work that they're doing. Instead, we focus all of our attention on the IVs and these research institutions and give them more and more money when the fact is, you know, if you only admit a tiny proportion of the population, you're probably going to be fine. Like they're going to graduate and they're going to be okay if they go to Harvard and like the one low income student you admit to Harvard a year is going to be fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the schools that are admitting like 95% Pell Grant recipients get no more help. And they really need it. Um, so that's that's one piece. Um, we need to double the Pell Grant. That is, you know, as I said, the purchasing power of Pell has gone down. The Biden administration backed doubling the Pell Grant, um, wanted to go further and build back better and then um, had to step away because that legislation fell apart. But even there, it was it was a small bump and we need a bigger bump. Um we need to um, have uh, an investment in outcomes. So, uh, one of the things that they had proposed in Build Back Better was a $62 billion college completion fund that I spent a ton of my time working on saying, hey, instead of just paying colleges for admitting students, why don't we actually advance evidence based programs that get them through college? Oh, and man. There are so many good ideas to do this, and people are doing it. CUNY ASAP, uh, the City University of New York, um, has this program ASAP where they doubled their graduation rate. Uh, They doubled it. We need to be wow. investing in those kinds of things instead of just saying wander around, buyer beware, take your voucher to wherever you want. Um, and that's that's another piece. And then, as um, you know, as I said, fixing the servicing program and like the loan servicers are horribly broken. We're letting people's balances grow. Um, the PSLF program has been completely shoddily implemented. We need to fix those PSLF? things so that when people, oh, sorry, secret? the pub- public student loan forgiveness program yeah. I had mentioned earlier oh, right. um, that. Uh, you know, has been really horribly broken. We need to fix those things because when we promise people, if you work for ten years in public service loan in in public service, you're going to get your loan forgiven. They should get their loan forgiven. That that's the promise we made. So we need to do that. Um, but it, just overarching, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is we need to look at the outcomes that these institutions are providing, and if they are leaving most of their students uh, making less than a high school graduate not completing the degree at all, uh, not able to pay back their debt, if most students come out worse than they would have been if they never enrolled, Ooh. we should not be sending taxpayer dollars to that institution. Last year, $3.6 billion of our money, Ron, you're in my money, went to places that left 75% of their students without a credential. Oh my Those God. are not... Places we should continue to fund, and we have to have a broader conversation about how taxpayers and students can make sure that when we are investing our money in an institution, that we are getting what we paid for. Because right now, we're really not.
1: <sighs> lene, I, oh God, I really could talk about this. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we could talk about this for a long time. Um, and I know that this issue is not going away. Uh, I'm certain that it will come up on another roundup. Uh, but in the meantime, um, before I let you go, I usually ask where can everybody find you on the internet? I think they know we'll link to that, but where should everybody follow your work on this particular issue? And if they want to dig in more to, um, really good education reform policy, um, where should they go? Uh, Obviously they can follow you on Twitter, but Yeah.
0: They can, and I will say I've been doing the work of vetting through all of the expletives that have been sent at me this last week to find people yes. that are actually engaging the on the right substance. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But for people who want to engage on the substance, please do find me on Twitter because people. This is a very personal issue to people. They have perspectives. It's a complicated one, and I do go through all of the expletive tweets so that I can find the real people that want to have a conversation. So I will be there. But, um, but also, you know, go to Third Way's website. We have a fantastic. Education team that's been working with me, um, and you can click on our higher ed work and see all of this. Um, there's a new fantastic piece in the New York Times from last weekend by Ron Lieber um, that drew on a lot of our work that um, asked the question if institutions or programs are leaving most students uh, making less than a high school graduate, should we be funding them? So you could take a look at that. And um, as you mentioned, I did write a Medium post that got me a lot of Twitter hate, um, but that also links to the um, Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, to all of the sourcing of, of all yeah. the data that I had today.
1: There's some great, great uh, sourcing in that piece. There's links everywhere in it, and it's really, really good. Um, so if you want to dig in, if you are interested, uh, I encourage you to go start with start with Linnea's Medium piece, and I, I would say, and then And then you'll, I'm sure you'll end up down a click hole if this really interests you. So, um, all right, my friends, uh, (laughs) Godspeed to you, um, be (laughs) in good mental health and, uh, and, and we'll see you again very soon. Thanks for being here, Lene.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.